0: Uh, First of all, from Ecclesiastes, chapter 6, verses 10 to 12. Whatever exists has already been named, and what humanity is has been known. No one can contend with someone who is stronger. The more the words, the less the meaning, and how does that profit anyone? For who knows what is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow? Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? Now chapter 12. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark, and the clouds, clouds return after the rain, when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they are few, and those looking through the windows grow dim when the doors to the street are closed and the sound of the grinding fades, when people rise up at the sound of birds but all their songs grow faint, when people are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along and desire no longer is stirred, then people go to their eternal home and mourners go about the streets. Remember him before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken, Before the pitcher is shattered at the spring, and the wheel broken at the well. And the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out, and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads, their collected sayings firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them, of making many books there is no end, and much study where is the body. Now all has been heard, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing,
1: whether it is good or evil. If you're uh, new amongst us, as the uh, slide is clicked, we've been working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're nearly at the end of our journey. But I want to start this morning by introducing you to uh, a man who's become quite popular in the last two years. Here he is on the screen. His name is Jordan Peterson. Hands up if you've heard of him. Or watched anything of him. Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson is a thinker. He's a Canadian, but that's okay. He's a Canadian philosopher. He's a life coach. He's uh, a philosophy major. And he's a writer and a cultural critic. He's got his own video channel that's been watched by tens of millions of people. He's just been over in the UK for a period of weeks to publish and to promote a book which he's just written. It's called The 12 Rules for Life. I like the uh, subtitle, An Antidote for Chaos. Uh, It's full of wisdom. And it is interesting to me why this man is getting such a hearing and then where does his wisdom come from? He's getting a hearing because the way he speaks, when he communicates and he's a very erudite speaker, there is a a weightiness and a seriousness to the words that he uses. There is a, a longing in the modern culture that is amusing itself to death, to quote the title of another book, for substance and meaning and he's providing part of that as a cultural dialogue. It's also interesting not just in how he's speaking but what he's speaking about. So Peterson is speaking about issues such as gender equality in pay, which is a hot topic, but he's also saying you need to recognise there are significant differences between men and women and that's a good thing and he's not, uh, he's not unafraid to say that. He's been talking about the responsibilities that individuals have in a society. He's been talking about the importance of freedom of speech. There's the ability to uh, give offense about something when you communicate, and there's uh, also the opportunity to receive offense, whether it's intended or not. So, where does he find his wisdom to, uh, to write these books? Well, the answer is in communism, there's parts of the Bible, there's parts of Eastern philosophy. He is a a modern teacher. His his work is worth reading. And so is the author of this book that we've been working through, the book of Ecclesiastes. He's another teacher. He's a philosopher. His name is Coales. Uh, Often people say Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon. But what happens throughout the book, just to give you a recap in case this is your first week, We've been listening into a conversation that he's been having, as it were, internally. He's been, as a believer, he's been practicing what is life like if under the sun is all you have? What is life like if you think God does not exist, although I do? What about if I take off my mask of belief and put on another mask? And to think about what is life like if this time is all we have? That's a a secular understanding of time. If God doesn't exist, what about if this life under the sun is all we have? And he's been pursuing pleasure and pursuing wisdom and pursuing work to find meaning. And then he's been looking at the world and how it works and, and thinking, that doesn't add up. If God does not exist, if you have a secular understanding of the world, then How do we work out what justice is? And today I want us to think about how do we work out what our ethics and values are? If God is not there, if he does not exist, where do we go to be rooted? Where do we go to get our values? Where do we go can we know right and wrong? Is there even such a thing? And I want us to look at two sentences. Here they are. Chapter 6, verse 12. The writer, the teacher... Presents us with a problem, verse 12 of chapter 6 of Ecclesiastes. For who knows what is good for a man in life during the few and meaningless days he passes through like a shadow? Who can tell him what will happen under the sun after he is gone? See the question, verse 12. How can we know what's good? Now down to chapter 12, verse 13. Right at the end, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. The first sentence in the middle of the book is a problem. The last sentence of the book is the solution to all the issues that he's been pursuing. And I want us to look very simply at those two titles, the problem and then the solution. Uh, We've said that Ecclesiastes, as we think about the problem, is a book of questions and very few answers. The answers come in the rest of the Bible. So you could cut out Ecclesiastes and put it as the first book of the Bible, as a primer, as to kind of prime the pump and so on. But it's there in the wisdom literature for a good reason. And here's the question: It's an ethical one. If you have a secular understanding of the world that God does not exist, where do we go to get our values? Where do we go to get right and wrong? How can you tell me, verse 12, what is good in the life of a person, a man or a woman? How do I know what's valuable? How do I know what's right? How do I know what's wrong? Now, it's an interesting question. And up until recent uh, times, let's say in the modern post-enlightenment world, the point of reference in every society has been the divine, has been the heavenly. If you want to know what's right or wrong in a society, the Greek society, you go to the Grecian gods, the Hebrew society, you go to the Hebraist gods. You go and look, what do the divines say? What do they have to say when it comes to honesty? What do they have to say when it comes to sexual purity? What about how we value one another? What does the divine say? What does God say? There's wars over it. There's books written about it. Who is the divine in our society? Where do we go to understand the data points? Where do we go to have a divine set of values and standards? Because left to ourselves, we're just argue. And up until the last 200 years since the Enlightenment, that has been how humanity has operated. But now there's been a change. And the change has been, well, God does not exist. Science has disproved him. Therefore... Therefore, we need to make up our own values. So we can go to sociology and we can see what's the the common decision amongst all the peoples. We can go to philosophy. We can make decisions what's right and what's wrong in what's my best interest, but let's leave God out of the equation. That's what's happened in the last 200 years. People have been consumed that there is a physical world, that science provides us with the answers, and it does provide us with a lot of answers but not all of them. There's a physical world and it's real and there's no spiritual world. There's this life and there's no hereafter. There's no eternity. That's what's happened in the last 200 years. But when that happens, where do you go for your moorings to work out what is right and what's wrong? Here's an example. Imagine you're on the Eurostar and you're now on the train to Paris because you want to go and you want to see exactly the International Bureau of Weights and Measures. Yes, you do have too much time on your hands. You want to go because you're convinced that the man outside, m and who has just sold you one kilogram, we won't use pounds, one kilogram of potatoes, you, you, you're convinced he's fiddled you and there's only actually half a kilo there. But his kilo was on the uh, Weights and Measures stand and it said that it was a kilo. And this has happened twice and therefore you are on the Eurostat in Paris and you're going to prove to that guy that that it was not a pound of potatoes. In Paris, this is true, there is a climate controlled room of the International Bureau of Weights and Measures where there is the kilogram. And if you look in the Guardian newspaper that I read very regularly, (laughs) it says that a few years ago the scientists got very scared because someone sneezed on it. And the weight changed, this is a true story. And so now it's kept in a vacuum and you can look at it, but you cannot sneeze on it, you cannot touch it. In the International Bureau of Weights and Measures, you will find in Paris, the kilogram, the meter, and so on. It's the standard units of measures. Now why do I tell you that? Because if that wasn't there, our friend outside m and and Epsom Our friend who now wants to fiddle the uh, scale somewhere else. Every market stall trader, every big supermarket, every ruler, every government could have their own standard and could just fiddle it for what's in their interest so they could make a little bit more bang for the buck. You could never work out what was right and wrong unless there's a standard. Now you can see where I'm going. Our society has jettisoned. It's Christian moorings. It now does not go and say, what does the Bible say to find out what's right and wrong? The Bible is an old ancient book that's got nothing to say to the modern world is what so many people believe. And if that is true, where do we go for our moorings? Where do we go to know what is right and wrong? It's psychology, it's sociology. And Ecclesiastes has been saying, you can do that. And I've done it, says the philosopher, says the teacher, And this is what I've found, chapter 6, verse 12. If you do that, how can you say what is right and what's wrong? You can't do it. Imagine you're in a steel mill. You're up in Sheffield, they're producing huge girders for a project. And uh, as they're doing this, some molten steel accidentally comes out of the rolling device and it's on the floor and it cools and it hardens. It's a mistake, it doesn't have a purpose. And so someone comes along and says, oh, what's the right way to use that? Well, how do I know what's the right way to use it? It wasn't created, it just happened, it was an accident. But what's the wrong way to use it? Well, there's not a right way or a wrong way to use it because it just occurred as an accident. Friends, if you believe that we exist without a creator, without God, if you think that we just exist by chance, you have no moorings about how you can decide what is right and what's wrong. C.S. Lewis put it like this when he wrote it about 50 years ago or so. Our modern society is in a terrible pickle. What a lovely phrase. Our modern society is in a terrible pickle. With ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and we demand the function. We remove the organ and we demand the function. We don't know our left hand from our right hand when it comes culturally to knowing what is right and what's wrong. Just read your newspaper. And the whole of Ecclesiastes is written as a book to say there is a huge problem in the world. It's a search for meaning. It's a search for essec- ethics. It's a, not Essex, that's just north of London. It's a search for values. And if, if life under the sun is all there is, then you will never find satisfaction. Pleasure won't do it, wisdom won't do it, work won't do it. You'll never be able to say what's right and wrong unless there is not a standard in Paris unless there is a heavenly standard of right and wrong. Someone outside, someone who made, not an accident on the floor in a steel mill in Sheffield, someone who made you into someone who knows you. That's the problem of the book. And then here's the solution it's at the end. If we know that we have a problem in our hearts, if we know that there is, we have an inkling because there is eternity in the heart of men and women. Where's the solution? And this is where I want to spend most of our time today. Where's the solution? It's right at the end of the book, in verse 13 of chapter 12. It says this. The end of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commandments. Literally, that could be said, the last word with everything being heard. It's a wonderful phrase. The last word after everything has been heard or said. Chapter 1 to 3 of the book, that's the the experimentation. I want to find meaning in my life. I'm going to pursue things. I'm going to deny my heart nothing. I'm going to go for wisdom under my own uh, understanding. Chapters 4 to 10, I've experimented. That's the first part. I've now looked at the world, and the world isn't working as I expected it to be. There's no meaning. And he gets to the end, and he says, this is what I've discovered having endless resources, having endless time, this is what it's all about. If you want a meaning in your life, if you want to understand why you exist, if you want ethics and values, if you want justice, fear God and keep his commandments. Now, if you're new to Christian things, you may be saying, are you really kidding me? Are you going to stand there and say that the answer to the problem is in a 3,000-year-old list of commandments. I know this guy's written 12 rules for avoiding chaos. Are you really saying that we're going to have to look at the 10 commandments? Because it says here to fear God and keep his commandments. Yes, I am going to say that. And let's look at it closely. Because it's not just me saying it, it's Jesus who said it. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. In other words, this a world which is beautifully made, which God sustains, which we are empowered to enjoy, it's just scaffolding. The mountains and trees and the skies, they're scaffolding to the eternal promises of God. Everything's going to pass away, but there is an eternal bureau of standards that is not in Paris, it's in heaven. And heaven, as it were, came down and God communicated And he wrote down ten sentences. And the meaning of life is to know the one who made you. And that begins by verse 13, fearing God and keeping his commandments. Now we need to look at this very slowly and carefully. When I say fear, I have one definition. But what does the Bible say fear is? It has two main usage. Here they are. In 1 John chapter 4, it says there is a fear that we can have when we approach God and it's a fear of a scared of being hurt, where you're focused on yourself and you want to avoid being harmed. It's a self-preservation. That's one definition of fear that's used very, very rarely. The vast majority of uses of the word fear are in a completely different orientation. To fear God in the Bible the vast majority of times, is used in a very positive way. Here's two examples, Proverbs 28, 14. Happy is the man that fears always. How can fear bring happiness? Well, the Bible says it does. Proverbs 18, the more you fear, fear God, the more you fear God, the happier you're going to be. So the first definition of fear is a self-preservation. The second, the majority use of the word fear Is an inner state of awe and amazement at who God is, simply put. It's awe and amazement at wonder, at the character of God. That you see something of God's nature, you understand something of his love and power, and there is a response in your heart that says, wow. It's an inner condition of respect. It's a trembling, it's an appropriate response to who God is. It's amazement at his power and his might, but also at his love and mercy. No division. You can be amazed and fearful because of the love and grace of God as much as the strength of his right arm. You're not afraid of being hurt in the vast majority of cases. You see who God is... And because of his greatness, you respond in trembling and respect and awe and you are slow to approach the God of the Bible. But you can and you do because of Jesus. So three examples. You, if you fear God in this way, if you fear him because of his love and his grace, the sins that are racking up in your life, they become smaller because you know that you're forgiven by Jesus at the cross. When you're standing in fear of his wisdom and his power, the troubles that are huge in your life become smaller. They don't go away, but they become smaller because you know who God is. When you're standing in fear and you understand that you're adopted and known and loved by King Jesus, by the God of the Bible, that the Holy Spirit is in your hearts, then the criticisms of other people become smaller too. That's what it means to to fear God and to understand his character. It's It's not sadness, it's joy. It's not constriction, it's freedom. The fear of God means that you have an understanding of who God is that is so huge, that's so biblically rooted, It's so glorious and wonderful that you want to bow before him. You want to obey him, not out of a trembling fear, but out of love. And there's a tension to keep those two words together magnitude and awe and respect your mind is not on yourself it's on him and when you see him you know him and you enjoy him It's it's a lovely way of expressing the rest of this verse here is the search of meaning come to an end if you want to know why you exist if you want to know why you're here if you want an end to the searching this is where it ends to fear God, to know him, to enjoy him. And then out of that response, we're to keep his commandments. Now we need to be very careful here. Think back to me to the time in the book of Exodus when God gave his commandments. Was that before or after he rescued his people? This is vital. It was after God rescued his people. So God did not say, if you want me to rescue you, You need to pull your weight. When you get to the obedience-ometer, up to a 10 out of 10, then I will come in and swoop in and rescue you. Nothing of the sort. God, by his grace, reached out and rescued his people who had not earned it, who did not deserve it, who had nothing to offer him. And yet he rescued them. And then, and only then, the commandments not being given in Egypt, but on Mount Sinai, Did he speak a word to say, because I've rescued you, because I've saved you, you're to obey me. Obey me in fear and love and respect and honour. It's not as we thought in Just Start Talking. It's not do this and I will rescue you. It's I've done it all and out of gratitude and love, you're to obey me, to keep my commandments. You can try and keep the commandments and... uh, It will go either one of two ways. You can say, I'm going to uh, obey the law today. I'm going to obey the Ten Commandments, having read them afresh. And then God will accept me. Or you can say, I'm going to obey the law of God. I'm going to keep it. Because through Jesus and what he did, I am already accepted. Two completely different motivations. One, the first person will grow, but they will grow in pride. Heart, they will become superior to other people, they will grow in an arrogance that God, you owe me because I've kept the commandments. But the other person, the other person who sees that they're accepted in Jesus, they are saved already, they've been rescued as the Israelites were in the Old Testament. So, Jesus rescues us in the New Testament. They are motivated out of love, they are motivated out of fear. But fear motivated by love, not fear that God will get us. And we're not afraid of being hurt by God. We're afraid of his grace. We're afraid of his love. We're afraid of, we're afraid of wanting to harm our relationship with God in any way. No arrogance here, but understanding that we have been rescued by God's grace, not our own. God's achievement and efforts, not our own the cross, not by our own achievements and proud spirits. When you see that, that's the solution to the problem. When you see that, you begin to understand who God is and your mind is filled with the magnitude of the love of God. It's wisdom, it's wisdom from above. Not in Paris, but in heaven. What do I mean? Imagine you're driving your car, Trying to get somewhere on a Saturday afternoon. Unfortunately, it's round the M25. So you know you're going to have a top speed of about 20 miles an hour if you're lucky. But you're there and you're coming up to junction eight on the M25 and you're listening to Classic FM or Absolute or whatever your poison. And then the traffic comes on and it says, There is an accident ahead of you. It's at junction 10. If you're on the M25, I suggest you take another route and whatnot. It's wisdom from above. You'll never meet the person. That's uh, driving the helicopter. You'll never meet the person that's looking down and can see the problem ahead of you. But it's wisdom from above that you can choose to act upon and accept. Or you can choose to ignore and face the consequences. The Ten Commandments are wisdom from above. The wisdom of God who made us, who knows us, who's planned the best for us, who cares for us who wants a relationship for us for all eternity and has done everything to have that. And so the Creator, the wisdom from above speaker can say, I know what's best when it comes to sex. I know what's best when it comes to how you use your money. I know what's best, children, when it comes to your parents. And and so the Ten Commandments go on. How can God say that? Because he made you. And that's why he knows what's best. And we can choose to ignore that or we can choose to fear God and to keep his commandments. You might think, hang on, that's ridiculous, this 3,000 year old book that's so prohibitive, that would just be so constrictive in my life. I like the way I live. Well friends, you can keep going in how you live and chapter two's about that, the pursuit of pleasure. And you can go right to the very end as the writer did, but he said it's still meaningless. This is where the meaningless ends, verse 13 of chapter 12. Here's the end of the talking and the end of the pursuit of pleasure and happiness. Fear God and keep his commandments. Why? Because God's in the helicopter. Last week we had a hot air balloon. This week we've got a helicopter. God's in the helicopter. You can see all of space and time. And not just that, he's not far off. He's come close in Jesus. And he knows what's best. So three responses you can have. Let's think through very quickly, three responses. As we draw to the end of the book next week, you can choose to um, obey God without fearing him. You can choose to be like a a swan. You look serene on the outside because we live in Epsom, so we're smart-ish. We shop at Crew and whatnot. We can be smart on the outside. We can look respectable on the outside because we're not going to fear God, but we will do what he says. If you do that, your life will be meaningless. You can try to not obey God, pretend that he's not there, pretend to uh, just do your best, muster your own efforts and resources. Life under the sun is all that there is, and I'm going to pursue my own ends. You could live that way. The writer says, if you do that, your life will be meaningless, because he's tried that too. Or you can fear him and keep his commands. But some of you say, well, hang on, I cannot, I've tried that, and no one can do it. I've tried following the commands of God. I've tried keeping the law and it's impossible. Not one person can do it. I always feel guilty. I always let God down. I always spend my money in a way that I shouldn't and so on. Friends, if you have tried to keep the commands of God in your own strength and resources and you've failed, great. That's exactly, as Paul says, the way you should feel. Because left to ourselves, we will always fail. But the apostle Paul in the New Testament says the commands of God are like a schoolmaster like a head mistress like a head teacher that drives us away from ourselves and drives us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather than looking at the commands and thinking if I obey these then I can save and rescue myself God will please be pleased with me. When you see the commands of what they are you realize you cannot save yourself the burden is too great our hearts are too broken too self-centred, too deceptive. It makes us look for a saviour. It makes us run to Jesus, or it should do. Accept me not for what I've done. I'm too weak, I'm too feeble. I'm too half-hearted. I stand behind Jesus. Father, please accept me because what he has done, the life that he lived, the obedience that he has is now mine by faith. Accept me, please, because of him. It's our only hope. The minute you do that, The minute you say, I can't save myself. Christ, you can save me. I accept your life. I accept your forgiveness. I bow before your authority. The minute you say that, you begin to fear God for his grace. And you're, what the Bible says, born again. You get a fresh start. But then Christian friends, the majority of us here, Perhaps you're a little bit like me, that your obedience to God, the second part, you can say, well, it's okay, I fear God. I know it's a fearful thing to come into the hands of the living God. I know that verse from Hebrews. But if we're honest, our obedience to God has waned. Our uh, heart to what do what God says and wants has declined. What about you? You're doing things just out of duty and your heart is far from God. It's grown cold. Friends, if that's you, you need to go back to the source of the fire. You need to go back to the gospel. You need to repent. You need to say sorry to God for what's happened in your life. And ask him to send his spirit afresh to warm your heart to the things of God. Ask him to give you a renewed sense of fear. Fearing his love. Fearing his frown. Enjoying his grace. Now how do you do that? You go back to the Bible. You go back to the Bible and you read the gospel again. You go back to the Bible and long for astonishment and amazement at the grace of God to to leap off the page at you. You, you. You pray Paul's prayers that your heart's eyes would be opened to see yourself for who you are, and that's only possible when you see God for who he is. Because Augustine said, and Ecclesiastes could end, you've made us for yourself, God. And our hearts would always be restless until it finds our rest in you. Or as the psalmist says, blessed is the man who delights in the law of God and he meditates on it day and night. That's how you get renewal in your heart. By coming back to the Bible and saying, God, I need you. I'm sorry. Please warm my heart fresh. Fear God and keep his commands not to save yourself, That's already happened if you're a Christian, but fear God and follow him by keeping his commands. Let's pray. Father, obedience, commitment, diligence, duty are such dirty words in the modern world. Please help us to listen to these words afresh and to remember again This man tried everything. He got the t-shirt at every store. He denied himself nothing. And at the end of it all, he looked at life and said the chief end of man is to glorify you, it's to fear you, it's to know you. And that means that we want to please you by keeping your commands, by doing what you've said. Help us to avoid the danger of thinking we can rescue ourselves. Save us also from cheap grace. That means that obedience is a dirty word. Help us not to think that. But help us please to fear you because of who you are. Fear you for your love and your power. Your mercy and your grace. And the sign of the sign of us doing that would be that we would be obedient people. Help me to grow in that I pray. Amen.